Well, good evening, Hallows Church. Thank you. My name is Bryant, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to lead us in our study of the passage our friend Kim just read for us, Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. As we begin our time, I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, we love you, and we are so thankful to be able to call you Father. You have gone to great lengths to make us your own. Namely, sending your son Jesus to be the sacrifice, the atonement for our sins, that we might be reconciled, that we might be brought near to you. So, Father, tonight we ask in these next few moments that you would focus our heart's attention upon the scriptures. That, Holy Spirit, you would continue to teach us from the mouth of Jesus. That we would behold wonderful things from the word of God tonight. And that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit and leave this place proclaiming the good news just as we will find the disciples doing in this passage with great boldness. Lord, these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it is uh, a lot of fun that we are journeying through the book of Acts together because it is not only giving us the opportunity to refresh ourselves in the story of the early church, But Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, continues to instruct us, to instruct our hearts and give us new insights as we navigate life in a fallen world as his people. As I was thinking about the account and kind of imagining what Peter and John were perhaps experiencing uh, as we came out of last week's episode and as we step into this week's episode uh, in chapter 4, I was reminded uh, of about a decade ago when I went on my very first mission trip. Uh, it was to a country called Montenegro, a country in southeastern Europe uh, on the Adriatic Sea, a very, very beautiful place. Um, it was my first time having a passport. It was my first time uh, traveling abroad, which means it was the first time I was on a plane for that long. There was a lot of excitement around it because uh, it was a country that our church had adopted and began serving as the proxy missional strategist for. What that simply meant is uh, the family of churches that we were a part of had not yet commissioned any missionaries uh, to live or to work on the ground there. And so uh, it was our task to put boots on the ground, to survey and assess the landscape in order to begin to, to develop a plan for gospel engagement. So with that, we first began in the capital city of Pakaritsa where we met and developed contacts through a local missionary pastor there by the name of Vladimir, uh, a man that our pastor, uh, when he lived there at a different time, had worked with, partnered with in gospel ministry, and so that was our primary contact in the country in the capital city. We then set out for the mountain city of Bielapoye, and the first time men from our church went, it was in the dead of winter, and we knew absolutely no one. They spoke little to no Serbian, or as the proud people of Montenegro would say, they speak Montenegrin, which Serbian and Montenegrin are the same language. And most of the people that they met initially spoke little to no English. So it was a very interesting start to our missional engagement efforts, especially in the city of Bielopoye. What we were met with as these men first entered that city and as we continued to send disciples, individuals, teams uh, to continue to develop contacts and meet people and survey the landscape so that we could develop a plan for gospel engagement, what we were met with was a high level of suspicion. 
People were wondering, like, what are these foreigners doing? What are these Americans doing in our town? What do they come for? We, we have a church here. The Serbian Orthodox Church is here. Uh, so why are they here? And we knew that there was a high level of suspicion, not only because of the cold shoulder that we were receiving uh, out of the public square, the suspicious looks and glares, but as people would go out during the day to grab a coffee or to share meals or just to meet people when they would come back to the hotel, it was clear that someone at some point in time during the day, uh, almost on the daily, as a matter of fact, had come into the room and it kind of rummaged through uh, the luggage. Now, the stuff wasn't thrown all over the room. It wasn't strewn all over the place. But it was clear that somebody had been messing with your stuff. <laughs> so we knew that they were highly suspicious. But by God's grace, we were able to establish contacts in that city, and particularly with two men who had been friends since college, Miro and Sasha. Uh, Miro had... Uh, been used of God to lead Sasha to faith in Christ, uh, but they were the only believers by their own admonition in the city uh, that they had known. And so for nearly 20 years, they have lived a very discouraged uh, and lonely existence as disciples in the city of Bielopoye. So it kind of became clear to us as a church as we were engaging in ministry there uh, that not only did God allow us and open a door of opportunity for us to step into this city to, to figure out how we can uh, engage lostness, but one of the express purposes perhaps that he had given us, one of the callings and the assignments that he had given us was to come alongside these men and encourage them uh, to invest in their life, to invest in their discipleship uh, as they had been journeying together but also alone together in this city for such a long time. Uh, recently received a report from some of my friends back in Texas where they are still engaging in the work there. And uh, both of these men were in their early to mid-40s at the time. This was almost a decade ago. Uh, Sasha uh, ended up marrying a lady, and uh, they have struggled with infertility for quite some time. She is a believer, uh, but his parents who are like right now, currently, like in a, in a season where they are near death, they are unbelievers, uh, and they, they're angry at him because his wife has not had a child uh, to carry on the family name. And what they, uh, in their lostness, have encouraged, what they're encouraging or bantering him uh, to do is to divorce his wife so that he might marry a lady who can give him a baby. This is, this is the kind of opposition these believers are experiencing in that city. By God's grace, Miro, uh, his youngest son, uh, has embraced the gospel, but he's also been diagnosed with stage four cancer. Uh, but God has strengthened their faith even in such a trial as this. Uh, as we continued to send disciples and teams to that city, we were able to develop other relationships. Uh, a friend of mine, Cliff, uh, <laughs> a very gregarious, interesting fellow, uh, a Texan of Texans, uh, ended up cultivating a relationship with, of all people, to our surprise, the mayor of Bielopoye. And other influential people in the city were just thinking, of all the people? Cliff? Really? But God had opened a door of opportunity for us to develop those relationships. And then the trip that I was able to engage in was a trip in which we, through the relationships we had built, had, uh, had gained a platform to host a public lecture to teach on or to speak of the meaning and the significance of biblical Christianity. It was an exciting opportunity, but at the same time, I remember as we rode into Bielapoye on the two-hour train from Pacarica, uh, kind of being being overwhelmed almost with fear and anxiety because of the, the, the talk of opposition and suspicion that I had been hearing from other disciples in our church who had gone on trips there. 
Uh, as we prayer walked the city, there was kind of this sense of wondering, are, is somebody going <laughs> to jump us, jump out of the alley and like jump on us? Are they going to kidnap us? Like, what kind of opposition would we face? And then I was reminded, even as I was sharing with uh, Pastor Andrew and Corey this week, there was an incident earlier in my life where I was presented with an overwhelming sense of fear. And you fast forward to these days, I'm across the, across the world in Villapoye, and I'm reminded, I was reminded of what uh, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. That God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love, of power, and of sound judgment, sound mind, of self-control. And with that, I was also reminded of, of Peter's words, that we can cast our cares, cast our anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for us. And as the word of God began to ring in my heart, I began to press in and pray and ask God to lift that cloud of fear and anxiety because what he had called us there to do was to be his witnesses, to be lights in the midst of darkness. And when I began to pray, it began to make all the difference. I say all of that because I find that it's easy to become discouraged and deflated when we're faced with challenges, with hardships, and with opposition, like we saw in last week's passage. But we don't see that in today's passage. We see disciples who, when faced with opposition, what they do is double down. They don't double down in their efforts or their methodologies, but what they do is they double down in their confidence in who their God is, which becomes the fuel and the motivation of their perseverance. You see, instead of seeing the opposition of the, the Jewish leaders as overwhelming and insurmountable, they remind themselves that they worship the God who created the very heavens and the earth, and that there is no one higher, there is no one greater than he is, including the very leaders who are presenting opposition to the gospel message they are proclaiming. I think this is maybe what they were beginning to realize or maybe what it was going through their heart. And when we, when we heard them speak last week, even in the midst of that opposition as they were being told by these leaders to no longer teach and preach in the name of Jesus, what they said is, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. These are, these are very religious people. These are the religious leaders and what these men whom they... They see as uneducated men, but they see that there's something different about them and that something different is that they had been with Jesus. These men said to these religious leaders, now you decide, <laughs> you tell me if it's right for us to obey you or obey God. But you know what? Don't, don't, even, don't even worry about it. You guys talk amongst yourselves about that because that's for us. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. With that very statement, what they were saying from a place of deep conviction to these men is that you are not greater than our God and we must obey him. And so we find ourselves today in the third episode of a story that began with Peter and John in Acts chapter 3, simply going to the temple to pray. I think it's just amazing to see what can happen when we walk with our eyes open for what God might be doing around us. As we jump into today's text, the first thing we see is the importance of community. In verse 23, we're told that after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, 
as they had been proclaiming the gospel, uh, they were on their way to pray. They met a man at the gate who was begging for money, and they didn't have any money. And they said, what we have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And Jesus healed him. He stood up. He went into the temple praising God. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew something miraculous had happened. And that was the platform to begin to proclaim the gospel message. And as people responded to the gospel, people began to, to repent and believe. There was obviously something happening, and the Jewish leaders took note of this, and, and they captured them. They arrested them, and they pulled them to the side and said, listen, we can't deny what's been going on, but what we're going to tell you to do is not to continue teaching in the name of Jesus. Don't teach and preach in this name anymore. And that's where they said, you guys, you guys decide who we should obey, but we're going to keep going. We're going to keep doing what God has called us to do. After they were released from that situation, they come back to their own people. Now, there's some speculation as to who their own people are, who they might have been, whether it's just the other 10 apostles or maybe it's even uh, the rest of the 120 who were in the upper room praying and waiting for the Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But what's for sure is that these people were close to Peter and John. Now, I think this pattern of of going out and ministering in Jesus' name and, and reporting back was something that Peter and John were accustomed to. It was something they learned from their time with Jesus. It's akin to the account in, in Luke chapter 10, Luke's first volume in his writing to Theophilus, where Jesus sends out the 72 in pairs, giving them specific instructions on what they're to do when they go. And then later in verse 17 of Luke 10, we find them returning with joy with the report to Jesus, Lord, even, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus is like, good lesson learned, good lesson. They would go out, they would proclaim the gospel, it would be validated with signs and wonders, and they would come together and report to one another what they had experienced. Well, here in Acts, this account is very much in keeping with that pattern. Peter and John have gone out as a pair. They healed a man everyone undeniably knew was lame from his birth, which I think simply means that there was, there was no mistaking that they did not plant this man, <laughs> that this was not something they conjured up. They healed a man that everybody knew was, was lame. They proclaimed the gospel. People responded with repentance and faith in Jesus, and they went back after facing opposition from the Jewish leaders. Once they were released, they went back and told what they had experienced, especially that they were told not to teach and preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Now, the question for us to consider from their example, just from this opening statement in the passage, I think the question for us to consider is, first and foremost, who are you going out with? Not who are you dating, not who are you seeing. Who are you going out with? You see, the passage today is the account of Peter and John coming back after having gone out together to minister. It's the idea that I've been trying to seed when I've been given an opportunity to speak from the mic here, that we should be pursuing mission together with other disciples. And that can take many forms when we do that. Perhaps you have the opportunity to work in close proximity to another member of the church or another disciple. Maybe you have opportunity to speak into a person's life. Maybe a colleague, a coworker, a friend that also works close by is going through a tough time in life. And you have, you have the, the privilege to speak gospel truth, biblical truth into their life. Or maybe it's clear that God is opening a door for the gospel for people around you. Invite someone to join you in pursuing mission together in that. Invite someone to, 
to lunch or to coffee to pursue mission together. Maybe it looks like a mom or a dad inviting another believing mom or dad on a play date because you're going to go hang out with a neighbor or uh, some other friends who have kids. And it's obvious that these people uh, are not walking with Jesus. And so you invite a believing family to join you in that, not for the express purpose of hanging out and fellowshipping. I think that's going to be a byproduct of pursuing mission together. But you invite another believing family into that to pursue mission together, to image what life in Jesus is like. And as he might open a door of opportunity, speak of Jesus with these people. It could also look like if uh, God has put, in, uh, put a burden on your heart for your neighborhood or a particular area in our city, inviting another disciple to prayer walk with you. Not expressly for the purpose of not being alone, but to join you in mission. Yes, to pray and intercede for uh, that area, for the strongholds in that area to be torn down, for the light of the gospel to come in, for people to be saved. But also as you are prayer walking. I don't know if you've ever done it before, but anytime I've gone out prayer walking, it's inevitable that I meet someone. And as you meet people, as you're journeying together with another disciple, it's reinforcement as you are pursuing mission together in that way. I think we'll see ministry happening in pairs a lot as we journey through Acts. It's kind of the norm. Solo ministry, on the other hand, is the exception. And I'll give a quick word of caution. Because I believe that, unfortunately, many of us are living in the realm of the exception when it comes to our discipleship. We're doing a lot of life solo. We're doing a lot of ministry, oftentimes, solo. And this can even be the case for those who are married, in that your nuclear family is the extent of your Christian community. Sure, you're a member of the church, you're a part of the church, but are you doing life and pursuing mission with other members of the church, whether it be other families, other marriage, or even singles? Let's join together and pursue mission together. You might remember earlier this year, we spent a lot of time journeying through Ephesians, and what we found there is God's grace is made visible through the church. So even as we pursue mission, it should be the norm that we are pursuing mission together. So the question, who are you going out with? If you're Peter, who is your John? Now the second question I want us to consider is, who are your own people? Who are you coming back to and sharing the stories of your gospel encounters with, regardless of the outcome? Because that's not even up to us, right? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, now we have this treasure, the light of the gospel, in clay jars, our body, so that this extraordinary power, God's salvation, may be from God and not from us. Paul is saying he's, God has set it up in such a way that he has given this, this incredible treasure, the light of the gospel, and he is deposited into clay jars, earthen vessels, so that as the transformative power of the gospel is on display in and through us, it is undeniable that it's not because of what's happening or, or this clay jar is not causing this to happen. It is the power of God. The source of that power is somewhere else. So I think that should remove the pressure of feeling the need to report a particular outcome when we share about our gospel encounters. But I wonder if our witness might be stunted because we have a false view of what success look like, looks like. 
that we think particular results rather than loving obedience of the Savior and faithfulness to him and in his mission are the standard of success. Or that also stunting our witness is a lack of community to share with what we are experiencing. Now, in our church, I would hope that your answer to the question of who your people are would be your missional community. And if that's not the answer to that question, then here, insert a shameless plug to connect with the missional community of the Hallows Church. I'd love to talk with you about that. But I think the second thing we see in this passage this evening is the primacy of petition. I really love the fact that Luke doesn't waste any ink with the dialogue around the report. We know what the leaders told Peter and John, so we can trust what they came back and relayed to them when they reported what they had experienced. So, so Luke doesn't waste any ink around the dialogue, but what we're given is what seems to be their immediate response to this first account of opposition to the gospel. A response that we're about to see is rooted in the gospel. Check it out. The text says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God. When they heard the report, their response was to pray. Wow. Have you ever had somebody do that to you? Where maybe it's not, maybe you don't do this, but sometimes, you know, there might be a lot going on. I just need to, I need to get it off my chest. And so uh, I'm giving somebody a prayer request. And really what it is, I'm kind of sulking and complaining. Uh, and what they'll do is say, hey, I want to pray for you in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I want, I want you to pray for me, but I'm not done yet. I got, I got some more I got to get off my chest. No, no, no. I want to pray for you right now. And they begin to pray. Like, that's awesome. So what should happen? And I feel like that's the very thing that happens in this passage. Now, I don't mean to say that Peter and John are, are sulking and complaining. As a matter of fact, I think they're probably filled with the same kind of joy that they, that they were in in Luke chapter 10, when they came back to report to Jesus. So I don't think there's any sulking and complaining going on here. But I think this should be our default response. Yes, take time to listen well to one another when we encounter hardship, loss, trials, suffering, opposition, and persecution. Have sympathy and empathy. Love one another well, yes, but above all, pray. I think this is something that's too often broken about our times of coming together. We spend a lot of time sharing prayer requests, kind of talking about what's going on in our life, and in some situations we'll run out of time. And so we talk about praying, we ask for prayer, and promises are made, but unfortunately little prayer is done. Whether it's a group of five people or 15 people, the reality is when we're giving prayer requests like that, some things will inevitably feel more weighty than others, and they are. But when we're going around the room, so to speak, sharing like that, inevitably when we do get, to get around to praying, somebody's issue, which though it might not be as weighty as another, it's weighty to them. Somebody's issue might fall through the cracks. So my admonition would be like the disciples. When you hear someone share what's going on in their life, when they put a request out there, when they extend a report, pray. Petition our Heavenly Father. But I want you to notice the prayer the disciples prayed. I think they first appealed to the sovereign creator. They appealed to the sovereign one. 
Check out the text. It says, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. This declaration, I believe, is appeal is an appeal to the sovereignty of God. He is the supreme ruler and creator of everything seen. The heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. We started our time together this evening declaring, Holy, 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 all your works will praise your name in earth, in sky, and in the sea. He is the one who rules and reigns over them all because he created them. But why is it important that they begin their prayer here? I believe it's because it acknowledges and it reestablishes in their hearts that God really is the king of all kings. That he is the Lord of all lords. That all rulers and authorities are under him because he created them. I think we would do well to take a cue from these disciples in our own praying. Because what we see later as confidence, as boldness, I believe it's grounded and founded in this opening declaration of God's kingship over all creation. They go on praying in recognition of man's rebellious nature as revealed in the scriptures. The text says, you said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Now, I think this is a beautiful example of what it looks like for our prayers to be informed by the truth of God's word and how we can and should integrate scripture into our prayers. This is also a deeply theological and Trinitarian prayer. They begin praying to God the Father, who is the creator and ruler of all things. And here they acknowledge that God the Father spoke through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David as they are making reference to Psalm 2. Now, as Messianic Jews, those who are embracing Jesus as their promised Messiah... They've likely been lifelong students of the scriptures. And this is certainly perhaps not the first time they've seen or understood this messianic psalm as being fulfilled in Jesus. But what I think is particular here is how in praying this psalm, they're putting the pieces together. And they have real people they see as participating in the fulfillment of the scriptures, which I believe gives them more confidence That what they are experiencing in this opposition is not beyond the control of their sovereign creator. What's being laid out in Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3 is not something they see as having only happened in the past. They are seeing it play out in real time right before them. And I would submit unto you tonight that we are seeing the very thing play out in real time before us on a daily basis. The nations are still raging against the creator. Why do the nations rage? Well, it's because sin in the heart of humanity causes us to reject God's rule over us. We want to be our own boss, not submit to another. No matter how loving or kind or benevolent or merciful he is. 
You see, the lie of the serpent in Eden continues to, to ring in our, in our hearts and in our minds that God is holding out on us. That he is restricting us so that we, so that we won't be like him. Our hearts resist the truth declared by the prophet, the prophet Jeremiah, much in line with the song that we sang, that he is the God of the city, that there is no one like our God. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Lord, there is no one like you. You are great, and your name is great in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? It is what you deserve for among all the wise people of the nations and among all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. As the nations rage, this rage leads them to plot in futility, to plot in vain against the Father and the Son. What is this, what is this plan of futility? What is this futile plan? It was thinking that killing Jesus, the Lord's Messiah, would stop his plan of redeeming people from the very nations that rage and plot against them. You see how they link this together? They notice already three times as they have been preaching the gospel in Acts, they have made note of this point of the feudal plan. And when they make note of it, sometimes it's lost on us that what's happening in Acts is, is just after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. So the people who were, were in the city of Jerusalem on Pentecost, many of them had heard about Jesus' crucifixion. Some of them were even there to witness it. And so when the apostles are preaching the gospel and they are saying, you crucified, they're not speaking of some generic you. They are actually talking to the people that schemed against Jesus. And as they pray these words, three times already they have brought this up and said, you thought you were doing something. But what you were actually doing was executing the plan of God, which is the very opposite of what they wanted to see accomplish. These disciples are so confident in the sovereignty of God that they declare that nothing happened to Jesus. But as they prayed, whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Now, this is something, is this something that they just came to understand on their own? No, I don't think so. I think it's through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that the teaching of Jesus would, would become clear to them. You see, time and time again, and we don't have to look very far back into Luke's gospel, Jesus told his disciples that the suffering he would endure would be so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That it was in accordance with the plan of God. So where Jesus was looking ahead at what was going to happen because it had been prophesied, because it had been written in the scriptures. Now these disciples are able to look back to that event and to also open the scriptures and see that it was written beforehand and to understand that what happened to Jesus was not beyond the control of God. I think this, this very reality is what, what led to their resolving to trust God's plan. Understanding that God was, I'll use a double negative here, that God was never not in control of what happened to Jesus. That it was the will of the Lord to crush him according to Isaiah 53. Because only then would he be raised up victorious over death, the grave, and hell. This 
gave them confidence that there was nothing that would happen to them that God was not sovereignly in control of. Look again at the text. The last part of their prayer says, And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. They said, consider their threats. Essentially, Lord, you know how they've unjustly threatened us. So we trust that you have an eye on the situation and will act in accordance with your justice. Wow. Would that be your response? If you're being maligned because of your faith in Jesus, if you're being mistreated, if you're being ostracized, if you're being discriminated against because that is happening to brothers and sisters all over the world. But you see, these disciples, in light of the opposition, in light of the threats that they are receiving, they don't ask God to rain down judgment and condemnation on their enemies. They don't even ask for protection. They are embracing God's plan and purpose to advance the gospel through proclamation. So what they ask for is that he would grant them to speak the word with all boldness. They are asking for help in doing the thing that he's called them to do and trusting that he will attend to the matters that are not in their control, namely the opposition and the demonstration of power as the gospel is proclaimed. I think it's assumed in their prayer. They say, and now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I wonder today, what, what would our city be like if we began to pray like this? If our prayer was, God, you know the opposition we're up against. We trust in you, however, and however you want to handle it. But what we ask is that you make us bold to speak of Jesus. God, give us what we need in order to fully participate in your plan to reconcile people in the city of Seattle to yourself through the Savior by the Spirit. But what we see as a result of this prayer in this passage is Spirit-empowered proclamation. Check out verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. God heard them, and he signaled such by shaking the place they were gathered. Now, I don't know about you, if we were praying and crying out to God tonight and the place began to shake, I'd, I'd, I'd have something else on my mind other than God is answering my prayer. Maybe this is the big one they've been talking about, Seattle's going to be hit with, like, oh my goodness, is this it? But as the place was shaken, it was, it was a sign of confirmation from God. Now, it's, it was an unusual sign, but it's not something that was, that's without precedent in Scripture. We see it happening at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 as God has given the law to his people. And we see it happen in, in Isaiah chapter 6 when he is caught up in, in, the, in the temple and has this vision of God being high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. So it's unusual, but it's not without precedent. But we also see him confirming this prayer or answering, responding to their prayer because he fills them with the Spirit. 
Now, this is not a second blessing or a second Pentecost, but it is, it is a filling that is in response to the request that they have laid before him, enabling them to speak the word with boldness. And how else do we know that God heard them and answered their prayer? Well, as they leave the place, as they walk in the Spirit, they speak the word of God with boldness. Daryl Bach, theologian, says this. In sum, this prayer is an expression of complete dependence on God, a recognition of his sovereignty, a call for, his, for God's justice and oversight in the midst of opposition, for an enablement for mission, and for the working of his power to show that God is behind the preaching of the name of Jesus in healing and signs. He goes on to say it is a mark of success for the community that in preaching the word, its members have walked the path of Jesus and have suffered rejection. The reliance on God, the resting in God's justice, the willingness to suffer persecution, the desire to preach Jesus, and the call to God to show himself are all signs of a healthy community. The presence of rejection and opposition It's not a surprise, although it's not sought, but suffering is embraced when it comes from God. And turning to God leads to boldness. So tonight, though we might be disappointed and feel defeated when we face gospel opposition, my hope and prayer is that we would take a cue from this passage and instead of being down, Instead of feeling dejected, instead of withdrawing and retreating, we would come together in prayer, trusting and believing that God is at work even through the opposition, and that we would ask him to make us bold to speak of Jesus. Now, in the life of our church, we've been intentional to schedule times in which we can come together and pray. We've got one of those times coming up in a few weeks, November 20th. If you've never participated in a prayer gathering, if you've never participated in a time like that, let me encourage you to come and to be a part of a night of prayer. A night in which, yes, we can bring our petitions, our intercessions for one another, that we can bring those to each other and we can bring those to the Lord. But more importantly, that we would follow the example of the disciples here in this passage. And that we would ask God that in the face of all the opposition towards us and towards his gospel in this city, that he would fill us with his spirit, that he would give us more boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus. By his grace, he has changed our lives. And he has entrusted this treasure, the light of the gospel, in us so that he might continue to demonstrate his saving grace through us in this city. And as he gives us opportunities to go to the very ends of the world. Let's pray together.